Hello and welcome to A Cast of Entrepreneurs, brought to you by the Entrepreneurs Forum. I'm Elaine Stroud, Chief Executive of the Entrepreneurs Forum, and together with Sally Cowling, our Head of Marketing, we've been talking to entrepreneurs from all over the Northeast about what it's really like to be an entrepreneur. We're getting the real insight into their lives and businesses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of A Cast of Entrepreneurs, brought to you by the Entrepreneurs Forum. I'm Elaine Stroud, Chief Executive of the Forum, and with me I have Sally Cowling, our Marketing Manager. Hello, Sally. Hi, everyone. Nice to see you. And today I'm delighted that we've got some absolutely brilliant guests for you. I know you're going to love listening to this episode. We have Jill Courtney from Stonely Business Development. Hi, Jill. Hi there. Keith Miller from Miller International. Good morning. Good morning. And last but not least, we have Phil Kite from the Adventurers Drinks Company. Hi, Phil. Good morning. Good morning, all. Well, we thought we'd um, kick off, as we always do, by going back in time, back to when you were a a mere youngster, if we can remember that far back. And our question, and we'll probably start with Keith, is did you always see yourself as being an entrepreneur or a business owner, even when you were in your youthful days? Yes and no. I mean, when I was younger, I had lots of jobs, you know, even at the young age of nine, 10 years of age, I used to work on milk early in the morning. I used to do paper round. Um, so I was always interested in other things as well as schooling. So I kind of, you know, I was more interested in doing things as opposed to actually going to school, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and as I got slightly older, I was always looking at opportunities and how things worked and I was always quite inquisitive. So yeah, I suppose entrepreneur, maybe it's a bit too early to think I was going to be an entrepreneur, but I was always, and I thought I was different, you know, to others in the class. And I just, I came across as different and I didn't understand some of the things that they were interested in, which didn't interest me. So there was something different, which I didn't know where it was at the time, of course, when you, when you're a youth, but um, as things progressed, um, yeah. And how about you, Jill? Did you feel like you were going to go into business or did you have any clue about what you were going to do? I didn't. When I was very, very young, I can remember a distinctive memory that made me feel that I was a bit odd compared to other people when I was a child. I I remember somebody in our street, um, one of my little friends showed me their dad had just planted out a load of potatoes in his garden. Um, And I just thought there's an opportunity here. So I dug them all back up and I sold them to the street with little paper bags that I found in my mum's house and collected all these coins in. And then I didn't understand why everybody was mad because I thought that was, that would have taken a really good chance, you know. So, and so that I think was more about being, finding I was always wanting to be a leader and wanting to plan things a little bit differently when it came to schoolwork or came to teamwork. So I never really, and I still don't actually think of myself as a true entrepreneur. And I think the reason being, when I did actually go into business, it was really my dad who set the company up. So to me, I hadn't, I hadn't taken the financial risks. I hadn't, I didn't feel that real ownership. And it's, but the journey in business, I think the skills you learn, it comes out anyway. You know, so I think, what's that word? Intrapreneurial rather than entrepreneurial. I think I was probably on that side of the fence rather than taking the risk of running my own business. I think if you were selling potatoes, making money <laughs> after that as a child, that's quite entrepreneurial. Well, yeah, looking back, I think it was. <laughs> I remember potato picking in the farmer's fields, you know, anything to make a few bob. How about you, Phil? You've got adventure on your T-shirt this morning. Were you quite adventurous as a youngster? Absolutely not, no. I was a slow developer and a very much a conformist. So I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and I just went with the flow for many years, really. 
So coming out of uh, school, it was, well, what can I do? Which might earn some money. So an accountant was the, the role I went for. And I was just quite happy just following that trail for, for many years. So yeah, I'd say I was a performance and definitely not showing any uh, signs of being an entrepreneur in the early days. So what, what made you jump from being an accountant, Phil, to, to doing something different? Uh, Realising I was a really bad accountant, but it was part of the change. I was very driven, very focused, and always wanted to achieve. So I, I had that sort of set, if you like, of characteristics. But actually, I wasn't a very good accountant. So I actually moved into marketing and stroke managing businesses. So I spent my whole life um, managing steel factories, all things, and all the time thinking there must be more to life than this. And then that happened one day when someone rang me up and said, could they store an ocean rowing boat on our site? And uh, that changed my life, which was about 2017. So it took a long time, I think, to get truly uh, entrepreneurial. I had done a management buyout before that and other stuff, but I didn't see that as me on my own. That was part of a big corporation, albeit I was leading in. I think we need to explore that a little bit because I know a little bit about your story because you've been to one of our conferences and spoke yeah. on stage about it. But for those people listening who don't know the story, this boat that was stored in your site became your adventure, didn't it? It did, yes. I was sort of, well, let's say 30 years working and, and, and running businesses. Someone rang me up and said, could they store this ocean rowing boat on our site, which was on Scotswood Road. Uh, it turned up and I just looked at it. And about the same time, I'd taken up rowing on the Tyne as well. There's something different to do. So I've been a capital potato for 10 years moved back to Newcastle from working in, in Capital Durham and just thought I'd do something different. And so the boat turned up and I just thought, well, you know, maybe I could row an ocean as well. It was an ocean rowing boat. I, I stopped, uh, left the business. I set up a little company called Team Time Innovation to showcase Northeast Innovation on the boat and ended up rowing across the Atlantic Ocean um, as part of the Talas Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. Uh, that was for the first time. And this could be for some mad reasons I've done it again, but well, that was the start really. And, and that led me on this different path in, in life. So it's quite a difference rowing the Tyne to the Atlantic? Slightly different. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I worked out that rowing the Atlantic Ocean in the time I took was equivalent to three and a half years of rowing on the Tyne for my club in terms of number of hours. So yeah, it took 42 days the first time. So it's, it is totally different and, and different challenges, of course, but it, it, it changes you. And when I came off that row, I realised I couldn't go back to doing you know, the roles I was doing before. And so that was the biggest change to me sort of mentally. And then it's taken me another, well, three or four years after that to find something which I'm enjoying doing. Fantastic. That must have been quite a challenge mentally to be on the Atlantic. How long does it take to row across the Atlantic? Um, the first time was 42 days. So, um, and you would row 12 hours on, 12, sorry, two hours on, two hours off, 24 hours a day. And you do that until you finish. And the first time was very much a, uh, a rowing race in that we were all focused on trying to get a record ultimately. Uh, and there was uh, two other guys and a girl who had been our crew. So imagine a boat the size of, of two and a half single beds, and you're on that for 40 odd days. Just rowing continually, getting in your cabin, sleep, trying to sleep, getting back out, and going boom, boom, boom. That was the first time. The second time was more um, for a group of people who who'd suffered mental health challenges, and they were doing it for charity called Veterans at Ease, and they'd all been in a position of potentially taking their own lives. So um, it was nice to then sort of, I was trading them, someone then got ill and I stepped in. And so I did that race starting in December last and finished in January. That was 45 days with them. Uh, and that was a different type of row. That was actually more of, let's get across safely, but it's still a decent time of 45 days when we achieved it. Sounds a very long time. What was the, out of those two races, what was the toughest day or um, toughest moment? I think the first time you do anything is the toughest or the most exciting, isn't it? And so the, the, the toughest time was the first week of the first row when I suddenly realized, because you, you plan 
for two years to get to the start line, you know, raising all that money over a hundred thousand pounds to actually take part. I can remember the end of the first day having rowed for six hours. So it was equivalent to 12 hours actually on the boat. I was suddenly realizing as I sat in my cabin at night that it was going dark, I've got to get up in another hour and a half to row for another two hours. And then after that, another two hours after that, and it won't be morning yet. And then there's actually another, I thought, what, how have I done? <laughs> and I must admit, I, it was a really bad moment. I thought, you know, cause it was like two journeys, I think doing these challenges, any expedition, the journey to the start line is one, and then the actual expedition is another. So the first week was, was pretty tough mentally. And then after that, once you get in the rhythm, then it was fine. Um, so yeah, that was definitely the first week of the first one. The second one, I think mentally was much easier. More things happened on it, but it was a much easier sort of mental journey for me. I guess you'd already achieved, you knew that it was possible by that point. Yeah. And you know, the boat's safe, you know, although it's a tiny little boat in a big ocean, you know, as long as you stay with that boat, you're safe. I think I might have to take your word for that. And <laughs> <laughs> also the American crew who were in the second race felt that when their boat capsized, wow. they struggled to get out of it and it took 18 hours to be rescued and onto a container ship and they went to Canada. So that happened in the second race. But um, yeah, I, I, I found a very positive person. So I naturally thought, well, I'll be fine. You know, you've got to do that. You've got to think to yourself, well, it's not going to happen to me. And that, that actually is something that I always think it's not going to happen to me. So does everything feel quite easy in comparison now, when you come up against challenges in your business, you just think back to... No, I can't say that. I mean, I work in an office shed now. I used to run a business of 500 people. I'm now working on my own. And there are some days when I think, oh my God, why isn't this working? You know, I've I've gone from running an engineering business to trying to market uh, drinks and it's totally different. I'm spending time on, on marketing rather than engineering. And there are some days where I think, why isn't any of the ideas I've come up with you? <laughs> none of them are working. None of the influencers I've sent bottles to are posting. None of the people that I've sort of engaged with as, as venturers are coming back to me. All sort of things are happening. So no, it can be just as tough, uh, I think, mentally, uh, working from your fish ship than it can be a thousand miles out of sea. So what makes you get up in the morning then, Phil, when you're facing the challenges? Um, my dog, Charlie, gets me up in the morning. Um, no, but going back to the earlier conversation, I am quite driven and, and want to achieve. So I think that will get, that gets, gets me up. Uh, and also when I, when I stopped um, obviously working at a proper business, you know, I, I had a gap where I tried to set up another company called Raider Adventures, which was creating Viking boats, didn't work. Uh, I joined another expedition called Northwest Passage and, and after two and a half years, um, that didn't work for me. So I've had a few doubts all the way, but um, yeah, I'm always sort of driven to want to do something. So, you know, I'm sure just like Keith, I, I, I've watched his sort of career because we've been a similar sort of businesses and he's had a few uh, some difficult times in the roller coaster, you know. So, uh, yeah, I think we all face those challenges. So, Keith, tell us a little bit about your roller coaster. Oh, dear. How long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> about well, 20 minutes. Yeah, about 20 minutes. Well, um, yeah, well, I don't want to steal the show, but um, I'll do my best to summarize. So, you know, when we started, I mean, you know, you asked me before about being an entrepreneur. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm dyslexic. I didn't realize I was dyslexic until we had our children. And my wife's brother, she thought our son was dyslexic. So we had him tested and I did the same test and found out I was really dyslexic, which explains a lot. So, which explains why you're different, why you ask those questions and why do you, you know, not because you're trying to be difficult or awkward, but to try and understand, you know, like, and then eventually when you keep asking the question, why the answer normally is, well, we've kind of always done it that way. And then we think, well, is it the right way to do it? Is it the best way to do it? Well, probably not. Let's change it. And, well, can't change it. Why not? 
<laughs> we can't change it. And that's the spirit and drive of an entrepreneur. Um, you know, entrepreneurship, you know, what's that mean? I, I don't actually know what it means. Um, it, I know what it means for me, but I don't know what it means for other people. You know, and like I said, being dyslexic, you know, I, I didn't even know what entrepreneur was many years ago and couldn't spell it and still can't. So, you know, it's just, you know, it's just another label. It's another word like dyslexia. It's just another label, another word. And I don't, I don't buy into any of that. I think it's about people and the journey is about people and having the right people. You know I mean? If Phil had had a guy in the boat who was a downer and thought, oh, we can't do this. It's negative. That would have been a disaster, I would imagine. You know, you've got to be focused. You've got to be driven. You've got to have that passion, that enthusiasm. But I think you're born with that. You know, so the challenges, although at the time, the severe challenges, you know, I mean, again, you know the story, Lenny, you know, I've explained it a few times, but, you know, we started the business, you know, I was a young entrepreneur <laughs> or whatever I was, um, looking for someone else. I was ambitious and I spoke to a boss and said, look, I'm ambitious. You know, I'd like to understand what's your thoughts for me, 21 years of age. And he said to me, you're a second rate welder, that's all you'll ever be. And that really hurt me because, you know, I really was focused and I wanted to do well. And that really, really hurt me. I mean, I know I'm a big lad, but, you know, I'm a big softy, really. And I was really upset about that. So I went home and I thought about it for a while and I thought, hell, the hell with that. So, you know, I then went back and said, okay, I want to leave. Well, why do you want to leave? And I said, well, why do you want to keep a second rate welder? So that was the start of Miller. And I went around the local sites and cold sites and, and started to hand out, you know, my telephone number. And the business grew from there, you know, we, we started manufacturing uh, special buckets for customers. You know, we'd go on site and do a lot of repairs and we knew what didn't work, you know, in the engineering, we know we call that negative know-how. When you know what something, what doesn't work, you know, it really helps you find the method that does work and what could be best practice and how you implement that, how you put that into place. So we, we looked at, you know, the repairs, the refurbishments, and then we started building special buckets, you know, knowing through the experience and making the products more productive, you know, more versatile, you know, easier to use, all those kind of things, you know, like the Formula One cars, you change the tires, you tweak them a little bit and you get that extra speed. Same with buckets, you know, at the end of the day, you've got a machine digging in the ground. If that machine's got a, a, a really, you know, a good quality bucket with the right joinery and the right forces, you know, it will perform a lot better than, a standard bucket, for example. So we grew the business, did pretty well. Long story short, it took off. We started to scale the business really well. We expanded. We expanded in North America. We expanded to you know, various places all over the world. Um, started to supply the Caterpillar, JCB, Volvo, all the big brands, which was fantastic. And unfortunately, we got that horrible feeling, you know, that with Caterpillar in particular, it was our biggest customer by, by a long shot, by the way, and, you know, bought millions of pounds worth of product from us and our biggest contributor towards our profits. And then you get that feeling there's something not quite right. And we had this great relationship and something not quite right. And you think, well, and that's what the feeling we had when Caterpillar would basically do what they did, which was stole our trade secrets, stole our, our technology. And we ended up in a huge litigation. So we had a very confrontational conversation, which was the first one we've had with Caterpillar. I mean, obviously you don't follow with your biggest customer. So that was 40, 40 plus percent of our business and probably 60% of our profitability switched off. So like I said, we went from almost 40 million turnover to 7 million turnover in, in 18 months. So we got the team together and said, look, guys, this is difficult. And those who want up for it, you know, I'm happy to say, look, we'll help you find help, unemployment elsewhere. This is going to be tough, really tough. You know, and it isn't personal, but we've got to be ruthless and forget, got a half a chance of getting through this. So, and we did, we did, we got through it and we 
we live to fight another day. And now the business is growing again. You know, we've had other bumps and we've had the COVID and we've had everything else that everybody's had to deal with. But yes, here we are today and we've got a great business and we've got a great team and down to people, seriously down to people. Yes, you've got to have a leader. Yes, you've got to have inspiration. Yes, you've got to have determination and you've got to be able to fight. But also you need people who want to be there and be part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk at the forum a lot about is people and culture. Without people, you don't actually have a business. Jill, is it the same view? Do you think if you've had teams that have hundreds of employees that look after people in your mind? To give it a different slant, when I first got involved in Western, my dad said, why don't you come on board? The general manager's leaving, come and join the family company. And I'd resisted it for absolutely years because um, I wasn't an engineer and I was busy. I was working in the tech transfer department of the uh, University of Sunderland at the time. So I was doing a lot with automotive. We always knew the company were in the background with engineering. But I said, what can I do, Dad? I've got nothing. You know, Paul's an engineer, my brother, brilliant engineer. My dad is. Well, I'm only going to come if I can think what I can bring. And my journey took me to working. I was involved at the time the Northeast Productivity Alliance was set up. And I was involved um, with all that good learning around change management. And that's really what brought me to Wessington. So having done my homework in that brokerage role, I thought, well, how difficult can it be just coming in with engineering company? It'll be great. They've not done any of that stuff. And I walked in and I, and, and I got straight on the shop floor because I thought, well, I don't know anything about this, but I might as well get stuck in. And I, I had a few weeks just milling around and watching. And I soon realised that we had about half a dozen team leaders who weren't team leaders at all. They ran the shop entirely on a, an underground political basis. And, and, and I soon also knew that there's only two other girls or something in the whole company at the time. And these guys had come from shipyards, they'd come from the mining industry, they were ex-Remi and Army. And what they absolutely did not want was the boss's daughter rocking up and starting to interfere. But from a perspective of what, what does it mean to walk into heavy engineering and, and, and as a woman, and I'm not, not doing this from a, a feminine point of, a feminist point of view, but the brutal reality is you walk in and you're going to bring change and it's not always welcome. So I got the, t- the shop floor together and I said, I'm going to communicate honestly and directly with you and I just, I'm going to listen and I'm going to understand what your, what your problems are. So they nodded very wisely and obviously had made the mind of entirely the welcome we do that yet. <laughs> so um, I actually, in in a previous um, time in my career, I'd watched very carefully and I'd, and, and I talked to Nissan a lot about this, what DuPont had done. Um, and they did this thing called Safety First, which I thought was excellent. And they started in their change management and made it around safety. Because if you can win hearts and minds around the practical things where people haven't felt listened to for so long. And that wasn't that we had an unsafe factory. There was things people wanted to make their work and lives easier. So, you know, they, they might have a bit of welding to do and they needed a gantry to be built and they'd asked for one for ages and nobody listened. Or they or they, they thought that area of the factory was unclean or they needed some something done about the fumes. It could be anything. But generally, although people want to do the right thing, safety doesn't always crop up because people need to get things out the door and, you know, you've got to watch the, the cost and watch the profit. So I thought, I'm going to start and do that kind of thing. So so then we had um, we had the other offensive, which was mainly about um, a very, very male environment. And at the time, this was a very old British coal building. It was dirty. There was leaking roofs. There was nothing really. Uh, you had to struggle to be proud of it. And, and I wanted better for everyone. So now, then my next challenge was how do I how do I start on this culture change, you know? And we've got to capture imaginations. And this these brilliant people hadn't really done any training, but they're also not really ready for that great leap of faith. So I brought I brought NAC in and we were going to run a stickle brick course and we were going to teach them about Kaizen. 
And I thought, if I tell them, they're not going to be there. So you needed two days to have um, uh, your typical loo day in. And they kind of were used to that. So within 24 hours, I had planned that I would divide and conquer and bring groups of them secretly into a room and they would do Sticklebricks courses. We were going to learn about Kaizen and we had these sort of trainers coming in, not quite knowing what they were going to be faced with, but I knew I had to give a bit of an incentive. So there was basically a creative beer for whoever came out with the winning formula, but I said, it will only work if I swear you to secrecy and nobody can mention a word of this because somebody else is going to take your ideas and beat you and you're going to lose your beer. It was phenomenal. Nobody knew about it. It was a mix of departments and sections and in they went. And it just set their imagination. They then went with the opportunity of the training and it was a massive big ask for people because part of what they had to do in the training was to go to Nissan with a lot of Nissan production and junior people. But that's really important to give people the encouragement and to motivate them, but also to help enable them. So we had to have a little space created with laptops and just get them doing the very, very basic. The other thing I thought, well, to be fair to them, they know an awful lot more about production than I do. So what I did at the time with a, a bravery pill was book myself on Nissan's Lean Leader course. And I was the only woman who went on the Lean Leader course and it was six weeks intermittently. of actually probably the toughest training I've ever done in my life. Sarah Davies, you know, obviously a friend in business will say, fake it till you make it. There was no faking this. You were with diehard production seniors from Nissan. And I, I was the only one who wasn't in manufacturing on the line or hadn't been there. I thought, exactly as you're saying. And, you know, you could, they, it's about getting the team around you who've got all of those skills, you know, hiring better than you are, trusting people and empowering them to do what they need to do. And don't interfere, don't micromanage other people. Just see what expertise you've got around you. But someone's got to lead. And you've got to lead even when you're scared and even when you don't have the answers. You've got to just put big girl pants on and get on and do it. So that was my baptism of fire. But I think it was about finding people, finding your champions, finding those who are interested in the continuous improvement and not having all the answers, listening, listening at what they would suggest, finding the budget, getting an understanding of patience. Nothing happens overnight, but gradually willing to work with the ones who would work with you. Have confidence in your own leadership and, and, and confidence in what you're good at. But then exactly. pick your team around without any champion the changes you know you're going to need to make. See what just described as, as a perfect example of having the right people in the right place. Yeah. You know, no disrespect, but you're clearly not very good at putting washers or coats in gearboxes. I would be disaster. Don't ever let me on a production line. Before <laughs> you could manage the team who yes. could do that really well. Yeah. And that just shows the different skill sets, you know, and that's where you've got to really understand different skill sets and everybody can add value to a business. No matter what they are, you know, you, you know, if you want to be fantastic, you have to be fantastic in every single part of the business, even if you're sweeping the floor, because that's so important to have the place tidy, you know, and someone driving the fork truck or someone in the finance yeah. department, all these different people, but you put the finance guy into driving the forklift or tidying up or managing the stock, then there would be a nightmare, but swap around the other way, that would also be a nightmare. So it's just finding those different yeah. skill sets, and that's truly the secret of running a business. I, I think what it is is not to put yourself into the position where you've got to learn it first and then show others, but when you know you're facing the toughest challenges, you have to be seen to have some credibility where you've been prepared for that. So I think going back to the business difficulties when we've had real financial challenges, I think also in that context, it's never leaving your staff alone without being prepared to step in and have the hardest conversations, to lead the most difficult meetings, to so that they know you've 100% got their backs when there is some hard negotiations or 
or whatever needs to be done to, you know, to get out of some difficulties. Well, I guess that, but that builds trust, doesn't it? it and you as a leader and respect from the workforce. When you're in a team of four, though, on a boat, I mean, you mentioned having a sense of humour. I imagine that's quite important. But how did you pick? I don't know if you were the picker, but how did you build that team when it's four of you? And did you interchange different roles as you got onto your journey compared to what you expected at the start? Um, the first the first team um, was picked two, two years before the start of the race. And then with only 10 weeks before the start of the race, um, I made a decision that one chap couldn't go for certain reasons. And then with five weeks before the start of the race, his, his mate said he wasn't what wasn't for him. So having gone two years, that happened with 10 weeks to go before the start of the race. So a tough decision for me and, and for the, the guy who I made the decision for, in effect. Uh, I was very lucky and then found, um, you read, there's an ocean rowing site and there's people hanging around looking to an ocean row. And I found a policeman down from Warwick and a fireman up from Stirling. And they joined with the 10, five weeks of the start of the race. And you mostly couldn't do that now. That's five years ago because the rules have changed and you've got to do so much qualifying hours and stuff. Um, actually, on the boat itself, on the first race, I think it was quite easy in a way in that everyone was quite focused on what their role, roles were. Um, but one thing is compromise. Every, you, have, in effect, have six days a day because you have six shifts a day. So you basically get up, do your row and go back to bed. So that's six a day. So if you have an argument on on the first shift of the day, no point having it on the second, third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth. Uh, you've got to compromise and, and decide, look, I'm going to um, accept the fact that it's not perfect. Uh, I'm not ruining the other 44 days times six, because that's how many days you've got. It's not across 42 days. You've just got to compromise, uh, say your piece at the tide, and then move on. Um, there's no getting off the boat. So we're in a small room here now doing this talk. And if we have a fallout, we've got to stay in here for the whole day, another 42 days. You can't get out of the room. So, uh, yeah, I think the, the, the best crews get over things quite quickly. The worst crews never talk to each other after the race. And so many are in that situation. Um, there's a famous story about husband and wife who went out and did a pair. And the husband was a rower. And during the race, he decided he couldn't do it anymore and got off the boat. And she completed it and they got divorced. So that's a good example of the <laughs> relationships not working on my boat. Quite extreme. <laughs> quite extreme. But it, it happens quite a lot. You know, e each year there are some boats where just people won't talk to each other afterwards. Um, so, yeah, you can get in that situation. But so leading a team, a team in those environments, there's no point being a sort of tough old leader and whatever. It's all about making sure everybody you know works together, does their bit, and and just I think as Gu was saying, you know, there's experts for everything. So you know, you have a, you have a fireman who's also does plumbing, then he's perfect to fixing everything else, isn't he? You've got a, a, a policeman who's uh, does an erg score, concept two rowing score, which on a six minutes for two k, which is quite amazing. Well, he's going to drive the boat from stroke, isn't he? Um, and then players, project manager, navigation, and everything else. Everybody did their bit. So, yeah, it's about team, really. The rows are always about team, unless you're doing a single, then it's still just about you. <laughs> so you've all mentioned challenges and scary moments and, and being sort of the leader of, of businesses at those times. Who have you turned to for support for yourselves? Because sometimes it can be quite lonely. It's incredibly lonely um, and it's 24-7. And that's, I think, one of the things that, um, you know, you're, you're not really prepared for until you, you're in the hot seat. But I was helped enormously um, on our recent journey um, when we we, would re we recovered from terrible five or six years of the oil and gas crash. And then we had COVID 
and then Brexit and as an international manufacturer, you know, 70% at least about business. You, you, all of these things impacted hugely. And any of the times we could have talked it through as a team, but one of the people that came to us, um, we brought in for the first time a part-time financial director uh, named Sam Condren. And she had worked with her, linked to some work with NEL, but Sam had been on a similar journey herself. And she had been in the hot seat as an MD. She's still and um, runs her own business now. But she'd been through difficult journeys and challenges. So I had someone who, you know, we've always watched the numbers, but I had someone come in who truly understood the numbers. And I felt that that was a burden taken away from me because she had the eye on exactly where we are on every single element of cost and everything that we should have professionally absolutely had our attention on. But she had a great understanding of it. But more than that, she had our backs and she, and she could talk to me. And I knew if she was in a room, I felt a degree of confidence that I didn't have before she came in the room with me because um, she'd walked that walk and she had that empathy. She understood when, when you're going through real challenges, we could have lots of conversations about everything to do with, with running the business that was um, above and beyond just the numbers. So someone you can really trust, trust to share the burden. Yeah, she could share the burden, but but obviously there was, she had a degree of independence still, absolutely. Yeah. But she understood the journey. And I think when you're so much alone, you need someone to have walked through hardship yourself, that's themselves, to understand where you are and to keep your morale up and actually to give a bit of praise when praise is due, when you, you've got this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's it's just, that's what you, you take mm-hmm. comfort. And then I think other than that, rather than having any single mentors, all the conversations that we've had with the Entrepreneurs Forum, when you find yourself sitting next to someone and their story is one in common. It's it's just that information gathering that you so cook without almost realising it. What about for you, Keith? Yeah, kind of similar, really. I don't think, you know, one individual, you know, you, you share your, your, your story and your concerns with the team who you can trust and you work with, you know, and, and again, financial control is a key factor in, in times of tough times. You need to really understand the numbers and how long have you got left before you hit the mountain. Um, and you know what we're going to do to steer out and fly over it or get you know whatever you're going to do to survive band the hatches down you know like I, I explained earlier you know when, when we realized that this was a reality what was happening you know we formed a we called a Joe 90 meeting called a Joe 90 is a bit of a fun you know and it was a 90 minutes meeting <clears throat> once a week and we'd shut all in the room and each of us would have tasks we'd review the tasks so it was basically survival. So you share that with with everyone, but you know, as the leader, you always have to give the inspiration and you know, focus positivity and, and whatever else. And you know, but there's only so much positivity and inspiration you can give, and it does affect you as an individual. You know, and again, I'm blowing my own trumpet, but I think I'm pretty resilient. But you know, when you've got the bank screaming at you, want to reduce the overdraft, you've got the tax man screaming at you, you're going to go and send receivers in. You know, if you don't pay the bill, and you can, you don't have the cash to be able to pay the bill. You know, I remember one day, it was my father's birthday, 2nd of October, you know, 2009. And I'd been into work all day. I'd had phone calls from the revenue. I'd phone calls from the bank. We'd had the meeting and it was like one of those days that was like, oh my goodness, there was no light beyond the tunnel. Things didn't seem to be working. Of course there were. Um, but when you're going through the storm, you don't see where the end of the storm is, you know. And I came home from work and I walked through the door, you know, and 2009 was a disastrous year for us from a business point of view, but it was the best year of my life from a personal point of view because my wife gave birth to a beautiful son and a daughter. So I walked through the door, you know, and, you know, my wife sat there, stood at the door, opened the door, you know, and she had one of our children in her arms and then I come through the room and she sat to me, you know, are you okay? And I just started crying. 
And I just couldn't, uh, I mean, me, I don't think, like, she, and she said, and I'll never forget, listen, we'll be fine. If need be, we'll sell the house. I've still got the apartment I used to have. We're going to the apartment. For, we're gonna, we're gonna, we'll manage. We'll be fine. And it was my dad's birthday, so we went out, and of course, I had to be the life and soul of the party, you know, which have, and you know, and that, that gave me inspiration. And the next morning, I got up, and I'm standing with him, having a shower, and I'm shaving, looking over, and I thought, you know what? These people are not probably going to get me down. So I went into work, you know, by the week when you do this one. So I picked the telephone up, they land revenue. I says, if you want to send the receiver? I said, go ahead and do it. Bang. I says, if you want to do something about it, go ahead and do it. I says, look, we're doing our best we can. You want to, you want to run the business, come, come pick the keys up. I says, because constant pressure is not helping us. It really isn't helping us. We are going to get through this. You know, there's no doubt we're not going to get through this, but you've got to back off. You know, you, you, we've got the message loud and clear. You know, anyhow, we'd then negotiated a deal with the revenue to repair the, the old debt. The bank understood clearly that they were working with us, you know, and not against us. So then we we, we formed a team and people realized, you know, well, we've heard the story before. And I said, well, you may well have done, but it isn't from us. Please don't toss with the same brush. And then from that, you gather inspiration. And from that, you see some rights. And then you see the progress being made. And then from there, you, you get back on track. And then it's like, so in terms of help, you know, I think it's, I think it's again, a team effort because not one individual has the answer, you know. And if you go around and people have been talked to, you know, you get the ones who are very cautious by nature. And those maybe are not the ones you want to be talking to when you're going through those difficult times, you know, oh, you shouldn't do this and don't do that and don't do the other. And like, oh my God, you know, and then of course, but, Again, back to people. Always about people. You know, surround yourself with good, good people, serious people, and positive people with a positive can-do attitude. You know, very important. And what about you, Phil? You're in a slightly different situation now with with yeah, I, I think, yourself. I think I've tended to bottle things up myself. To be honest with you, I think you obviously have your experts and people at work that you call upon when this crisis happen. But in terms of the emotional side of dealing with to say a rude word there, stuff which happens, um, then I, yeah, I'm, I may be someone who bottles it up and feels like I don't want to burden other people with that problem, to be honest with you. Um, so maybe that's not a good thing, but yeah, I, I don't, you know, I can remember I did a, a measure buyout for over 50 million pounds and um, in year four, banking crisis, uh, three of my funders went bust. Uh, one of the Bank of Scotland decided to sell us to, had it over to Lloyds to look after who then wanted to sell the business. So, you know, you spend all that energy getting your first management buyout, it all goes pear-shaped. Um, and yeah, I just dealt with that emotional side myself because I just felt well, I didn't want to burden other people with that. And that I think that's that's me. And luckily, you know, there's all, on the other occasion, I, I have uh, been a bit like Keith sometimes, you know, when you think you know, the tears start coming, but you think, no, there's no point getting other people there about it. So I do tend to just to bottle it up and then somehow release it maybe on some physical exercise of some sort and then just get on with it the next day in, this, in a similar way. So maybe it's not the best way of explaining things, but I think that's just my nature really. And in terms of sort of the next challenge for for all of you, but starting with you, um, in terms of you've obviously rode the Atlantic, which, you know, I'm sure not many of us around here can imagine what that's, what, what that's like. What would, what's your next challenge on your list of things to do as an entrepreneur? Well, I realised that, um, you know, I've come done 30 years in heavy engineering, then obviously did these two rows and tried to join another expedition and everything else. And then I, I thought, well, I, I don't want to sort of drift away. So I set up the company, Adventures Drinks Company. And the idea there is that I found out the drink actually was used to help fund, improve the morale um, and celebrate adventure. 
uh, even going back into the 1700s, 1800s, um, a gin company called Booth funded expeditions to the Northwest Passage to help people you know, try and break through the trade route there. So, uh, you know, drinks have been used in many ways. So I thought, why not have um, drinks inspired by modern day adventurers? I didn't know any A-listers, so I produced the first two drinks, which is a rowers one, obviously, uh, which I obviously by that. And Claire, a friend of mine, she's by the beanbaggers one. And now I'm out just searching for other adventurers and saying, you know, what drink is, is good for you? Is that could be alcoholic or non-alcoholic? Um, and what is, you know, why is that drink important to you? And then market that, and that will help them in terms of profile. Because I think one of the difficult things when you're doing an adventure or or, or something like that is actually raising the funds to achieve it. And you've got to get a high profile. And I suppose in the modern era, whether on Instagram, Twitter, or anything else, it's people who've got followers. But how do they get more followers? They have more stories. What stories can they have? Well, I've got my own drink coming out and that type of thing. So so that's the journey I'm on to keep myself uh, busy at the moment. And I'm quite enjoying it and learning new skills because, of course, I wasn't in social media heavily for you know 30 years running a heavy engineering company. That wasn't the thing that we were in. Uh, now having to get used to that and uh, get used to influencers, heaven forbid, and just try and market the brand. And I'm trying to do it sort of organically, so I'm not throwing like, you know, trying to raise money from lots of people. I'm just sitting in an office shed, mm. seeing what I can grow from nothing. And, and that's quite exciting in a way, rather than, you know, before where it's borrowing other people's money and, and trying to develop a business that way. Excellent. And for you, Keith, what's what's next on your bucket list, on your roller coaster? I guess more of the same. You know, you, we all need a purpose, you know, and there's a lot of my friends are thinking about retiring, so I've already retired, and you just think, hey, you're retiring. What? Are you kidding? We're just getting started, mm-hmm. you know? So we need a purpose. We need an interest. Yes, of course, it's wonderful to go on up the holidays and downtime and do all those nice things and, and travel the world. Um, but no, carry on doing what we do. Keep on trucking, mad. I mean, we've got lots of stuff on the go. You know, I invest in other businesses now. You know, we've got um, we've got other companies. I've invested in a tech company. You know, do a bit of property development. You know, we do all kinds of stuff. You know, low risk expanding. We're just opened up a company in India, so we've got manufacturing in India. We've got a company in Australia, so we've got manufacturing and sales distribution in Australia. So we cover Australia. Joint venture in China, which we fought for twenty years. We sell them in the states, so we're all pretty busy. Yeah, it sounds it. What about for you, Jill? Well, it's it's lovely to see Wessex in such safe hands. Following an acquisition, we have Colin Robertson at the helm, Colin Robertson CB, and ex Alexander Dennis, and the company's doing brilliantly. Um, and very luckily, I've got a very interesting consultancy project that I'm doing for Wessington, and that will be to set up hopefully a centre of excellence around cryogenic hydrogen and do something that I hope will be a real flagship that will complement the things we see going on in Teesside. So there's there's lots of that. But this has given me the opportunity with my own little business, which was really only fully operational from April, to um, explore some of my own passions. And from business to business stuff, still the networking, looking at skills, training, mentoring, all the things I love. But I've been a Reiki master for the last eight years, and a big piece of the business that I've developed is all about... Um, Mindfulness um, through leadership, through the mindfulness practice that I used to help me so much when I was struggling through some difficult times at Westington. Um, I, I think it's the most powerful tool in my box, and it kept me focused without any monkey chatter that disrupts you from what you need to do day to day when the pressure's really on. So, looking at um, building on, I'll be doing community Reiki healing, but building on that practice to see where that would fit with leadership. Um, and the neurodiversity, my, my husband delivers um, online assessments for people with mental and physical impairment. So we're really interested in how uh, smart 
uh, technology can be used to give people an equal playing field when it comes to, you know, getting them into great leadership positions or performing well at work. So that side of the business is something I'd like to develop because we're both so passionate about it. But um, yeah, it, it's you just you just see where it takes you. I'm, it's that it's that, that moment for the first time, Keith. Really, just to be able to say I'm going with my gut, which I always try to do, um, and and see where my journey will now take me. Uh, so I don't even have a. It's lovely. I don't even have a fixed plan. I just stuff you think times ahead. Brilliant though, because you know the mind, body, and soul. You know we all take care of our bodies, or we know about gym so or exercise. You know how it's important. How it's you know we've had this fitness bug for many years now, and it, it, it's obviously proven to be successful. But the mind is still something where we're where we're really way back, you know. And if you think about everything comes from here, you know, if Henry Ford said, you think you can or you think you can't, you'd be right. Your mind's so powerful, you know, and that totally by the way you're saying, by the way. You know, I never thought in a million years I'd be sitting thinking, Well, I'm gonna try meditation, you know. But it really is helpful. And I think there's a danger that people when they reach towards retirement, they think, Well, I'll I'll start doing some golf and I'll start doing going down the gym and doing all that. But they do forget that the mind actually is the most powerful tool they've got to keep active. Okay. So and hence you've got to you know, for me, that's why having a small business trying to go forward is is, you know, apart from all the physical stuff I do. Uh, I enjoy the most. And it keeps it exciting, doesn't it? Keeps you carried a purpose. And both of you have mentioned retirement or I'm not retiring. And we've learned this over many years of working with the entrepreneurs that we work with is entrepreneurs don't really retire, but they do have parties. (laughs) Well, the final question as we wrap up the podcast is about you imagine yourself at your 70th birthday party and, um, what three words would people be saying about you at this party and talking about what you've achieved to date? Probably where's her hangover because I'm last to bed. <laughs> you know people that I'm still dancing and enjoying it. I like that one. Where's her hangover? Well, we can help with that. <laughs> Keith? He's still a nutter. He's still a nutter. <laughs> and... Uh... All the drink is Miss Company. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, um, we'll we'll be delighted to join you at your parties. You'd be very welcome. Yeah, in the pools. Thank you so much for coming today. We've loved the conversation. I know we could have talked all day, but that's us out of time. So thank you to Jill. Thank you to Keith. Thank you to Phil. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having us. Good job, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Tune in next time for another exciting cast of entrepreneurs.